Hey there, welcome to the Product Hive Podcast. On this episode, we're bringing you the interview from our May 2021 design event, where you'll hear from Jasmine Friedel. Jasmine is currently the Director of Design at Dropbox. Jasmine will be discussing what does it take to be a design leader? Design teams are growing and maturing, and with that maturity, there are more and more opportunities. How does one break into design leadership? What does a management track look like, and how is it best to organize your team around it as a company scales? In this interview with Jasmine, we'll dive deep into her experience leading teams and her journey with her own career growth. A big thanks to Lucid for hosting this meetup. So now, let's hear Jasmine's interview on design leadership. Welcome, everybody. I want to just welcome Jasmine and thank her for the time that she's uh, taken to, to spend with us today and chat about this topic. I know it's a topic that has been talked about before uh, for Product Hive. It's a topic that we haven't spent a ton of time on when it comes to the leadership design management. And I'm really excited to just talk about your experience specifically and how you've been approaching it in your your career. So I want to just give you an opportunity to kind of just tell us about yourself, kind of give everybody an intro to to you and kind of start from there and then we'll go go into it. How's that sound, Jasmine? Sure. I should tell you all I am recovering from bronchitis. Um, so my voice is super fancy right now and I may be muting on and off to cough. So A, I'm sorry and B, feel free to use the you're muted when I'm trying to talk. Also, a little shout out to Al. I see you. Um, I see my newest teammate has joined and I'm super excited to see you listening in. Okay, so I am a product design leader, a director of design at Dropbox. I've had a pretty abrupt career in a good way. I kicked off my design career in 2013, working in an agency and then made my way through Facebook at Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, and led design there and at Udacity and Intercom and through a you know COVID-related event where we moved our um, entire design team from SF to Dublin, Ireland, which would have been super fun, but I couldn't do it. I found myself jobless this past year and ended up finding my role as a design leader at Dropbox. By education, I'm formerly trained twice because one degree isn't enough in graphic design, so definitely in product design through the more UI um, visual side of it. And I've sort of like fleshed out my experience into, you know, a well-rounded designer and then eventually a leader. So that's me. I live with my husband, Tanner Christensen, which I know has done some chats or a chat at least for you before Ben and three little dogs, um, French bulldogs, which I'm learning three dogs is too many dogs. It's just a lot when you're cooped up in a house all day. And so I'm willing to donate slash sell one of them. If anybody's, in, I'm just kidding. I would never get rid of my dogs, but it's a lot. I saw that post that you <laughs> posted on the, just the other day about those dogs are so cute. Your little Frenchies are. Like, they're so cute, but they're just, I mean, two of them don't have two puppies at a time. Like two of them are still puppies and they're just, they're rambunctious. Anyways, I love them. I do. Oh, we could talk all day about dogs. <laughs> New topic. <laughs> yeah, we Sorry, everybody. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I kind of want to break down a little bit of your career for this for this group because I think it's quite uh, an interesting career. I mean, you you've gotten in you've been design. There's some people that transition into design or that are career career transitioners, but you've you've got a good experience. I know you've spent a long period of time. I want to kind of start in the IC world. I know you spent a good 5 years at Facebook. And I kind of want to hear a little bit about that experience of growth from those mm-hmm. five years at, at, at Facebook. Or just overview. Yeah, well, the, the one interesting thing about Facebook is they call a lot of their designers just product designer. Uh, they don't really kind of showcase the leveling or responsibility. Like if you're a senior or a junior. Yeah, so I'd love yeah. to hear how that plays out with responsibilities and yeah, just how that. Yeah. Okay. I, I have mixed feelings on, on the, 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 the naming pair. Yeah. I mean, I think level, leveling plays a role. It plays a role in knowing where you're at and there are internal levels at Facebook. 
But what I understand the intent to be was it's it without having levels or public facing levels, it's an equalizer. And so you can have a, a, an associate PM who's working with a senior designer. And if that associate PM can carry their own, they will be able to work at parity with a senior designer. And so the, the stripping away of levels just gives some, some bit of an equality and an equity. So I started off, I had done some work at a studio called Office as an intern, long extended intern graphic designer doing branding, branding and packaging and all that fun stuff, which is what I thought I would do with my two degrees in graphic design. And I ended up doing my thesis project and it was a UX project. Like I designed an app without having any idea of how to design an app. We didn't have a lot of curriculum at the Academy of Art, which is where I went on how to do that. So I just kind of figured it out. And I landed a job at a now defunct place called Hot Studio. And they hired me as an associate UX designer with no UX experience. And the way I got to Facebook is I was one of a team of maybe 15 folks who were contracting at Facebook, because Facebook, if you can believe it, like only had 35 designers at a time or at the time. And now there's like hundreds, which is insane. Like to have come in as like, not the 35th number designer in a row, but like capping out at 35. And what I found was I really thrived there, even though I came in as a, like an associate or a mid-level designer, I, I can't, I know it was a level three. I can't remember what the roles are, but I was really well-equipped to do the product design because I had, I had the background in the visual design, the graphic design. And I had already gotten a job in UX. And so, you know, when we think of that combination of UX and UI, what I needed to layer on was the product thinking. And so I really, I really soared there. And I did so by coming in with a, a humongous spirit of humility because I had never worked with engineers before. And I knew that they would need to build what I had designed. And so I considered them my design partners and I really got in there and uh, made sure that we were building, designing and building together. I think at the time I was the first designer on payments at Facebook and I was working with six PMs um, and I think something like 30 engineers, which is just insane. And so I was managing all these different streams of work and trying to figure out how do you prioritize things? How do I invest? How do I design ahead? How do I, you know, how do I empower engineers to design? And I just review. And so like sort of getting thrown into the deep end of I'd never done this job before. And I really like, <laughs> I didn't know what the, I didn't know what the role was supposed to be. And I just like, I made mistakes. I made tons of mistakes. I had a supportive team who helped me through them. And I ended up getting promoted pretty quickly. I think I had two promotions within the span of two years to get to what we would have considered a senior designer. And when we think about the levels, I think that was actually a great example of I didn't have any bars on me. I didn't have anybody around me going, hey, you're just a junior designer. You should only be doing this. I just took that wide open space and said, I'm going to do the best I can here and I'm going to find my network of support. So I ended up working on the payments team and ended up being the payments lead. And, and I think there were like six people on the team as we brought in commerce and other payments designers too. And I think I had reached senior designer level by then. I worked for a couple more years. I, I worked on privacy, which is proactive privacy, which is just kind of funny uh, <laughs> to think of now. <coughs> um, and then I moved on to work on a special team, which was uh, the K-12 team that ended up being a, it's a curriculum-based platform for self-directed learning that charter school is working with. And they moved that over to Chan Zuckerberg Initiative and I went with it. And, and during that time, I became a staff level designer as well. So it was, it was five years with very short growth. And then the, the quick story is after I see land, then I just, I, I was actually never a design manager. I just went straight to director. Yeah. So that's really interesting. The whole 6 PMs, one 30 developers trying to keep uh, a hold of all of that. I mean, that's, I wouldn't say that's completely uncommon, but that you find in the startup world or the large enterprise world. Cause so how long were you a contractor? before you became a full-time employee? One month. A month? <laughs> One month, yeah. I, they put me on a project on the payments team and we got acquired a month later. And I just like to say, I never went home. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think one of the reasons that, like I hear designers today that they're like, oh, I'm pulled every which way by PMs. And like, I don't know how to prioritize my work and I need time for design thinking. And I think one of the ways I succeeded was I didn't push back on it. Like I just, I went with it and I said, I just said, yes. And then I figured it out. And so allowing them me to be a support person within the team and to be not necessarily a service person, but an active collaborator, an active collaborator, collaborator, rather than 
a blocker. I built relationships with people where we did, I mean, we did some really big things. I think one of them on that team was I, I was the lead designer on the design for messenger and payments, which I think is now just actual Facebook pay, which is a concept we had way back in the day. I led design on safety check, which was a hackathon. And so we ended up doing some really big sort of meaningful project launches, but it was because to me, it was because of the foundations that I had made as a, as a more junior designer, trying to build those relationships and trying to ship good work and learn what good work is, rather than just coming in and saying, I have an opinion on design and design should be this way. I had to figure out what design should be like at a company like Facebook. And honestly, like we were still figuring that out as a discipline, like what does it mean for design to have a yield seat at the table? And, and what does it mean for design to be a product partner, especially in an engineering driven company? Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I really want to dig deeper into that what you're alluding to there of, of designers can get become their own blocker in some way. Yeah. Can you kind of talk talk about that a little bit, how a designer might be coming their own blocker because of the unhappiness that they might have with a particular process or the unhappiness that they might have with mm. uh, the amount of work that, they, that they're trying to prioritize? I'd love to hear your thoughts are, around that caveat that by saying this is just me thinking out loud and that's what I tend to do and sometimes I'm wrong so that's I, I welcome it if I am oh, yeah. I think I think there's something to being you know principled having things that you believe in but I also think it's important to be able to let go of some of your principles and by that I mean like there, there might just be things that you believe in that you believe to be true entering in this idea of like what is the possibility of me being wrong and so for example you know we have a lot of students who come in from university and they'll say like, this is how you do design. And all of a sudden they get into startup world and that is not how you do design. It's not some like, you know, cookie cutter already baked in process. You may need to pull different parts of them and you might not be doing wireframes in the way that you used to. And so how do you learn to adapt and be willing to say, well, why is it different here? Is it because we don't have time? Does it mean that we need to shortcut a process? Is that okay? What are we missing out on? What's the cost of that? And maybe the cost is like, you didn't do as many iterations as you wanted to do. And so therefore we're going to ship the first thing that comes to mind. I do. That's not ideal. Like you want to make sure you come up with the best solution, but if you're a, a small team and you're, you know, trying to find your part, product market fit, and it's just about like testing and, and putting things out there, you'll learn much more about the business by maybe, you know, letting, let being a little bit more loosely held on your principles and your beliefs and values is probably something we don't want to enter in this conversation, but how can you provide flexibility in order to, in order to learn things that you might not know yet? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's really hard for junior designers or younger designers that haven't gone through that experience yet to have that flexibility or to flex that muscle a little bit. It, it really is interesting to see how sometimes we can be our own blocker by trying to create this idealistic view of, of how I want to work rather than working and working yeah. flexible with the way I work. Um, yeah. I think there's sometimes like a, a paralyzation that comes with that when, or for other reasons, when you start, when you start to get in, in a new environment, that can be in a new job too. Like coming to Dropbox for me, it was in a totally different environment, you know, going from a 600 person company to a 3000 person company. And you just go, whoa, there's a lot of things that I'm not, you know, familiar with, I'm a little bit confused by, I have a lot of questions about. And so it's easy, you know, in those situations or when the process isn't what you, what you feel like you're used to just stop and go like, I can't handle this, or I don't know what to push on first. And so just like sort of taking, taking a step back and just observing or allowing, allowing yourself maybe even to be swept up in a little bit, just to have some experience and to be able to practice for a little bit rather than just saying, whoa, 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 like, you can, you can sort of like that stop and think might be a good thing for some people, but it might actually be the thing that makes you sort of overanalyze or go too deep. And I think a lot about like starting a new company too. Like there's so many folks who they, they just want to jump right in and they just want to do the first week's worth of work. And that might be healthy, but it's also healthy to kind of stop back and sort of like watch what's going on and then see, you know, really intentionally choose what you want to get swept up in. Yeah, I really like that. You had mentioned that you kind of led particular projects. Can you def can you kind of describe what you mean by leading when you're not called a leader or like IC leadership? Yeah, like a little bit more of the IC leadership when you meant 
when you said I led the payments, uh, what, yeah. that, what did that mean? Yeah. So on that project, we had three designers on the payment side and, you know, my role as lead was to make sure that we had people working on the right things that, you know, highlighted their skills and made sure we, we made the project on time. And to me, that was <coughs> actually something that felt like early management. For, um, and for example, we had both, they were actually both um, acquired from Hot Studio along with me. We had somebody who was a visual designer and somebody who was a UX designer. And I was sort of that hybrid of both. And so, you know, initially we had it, I had it set up so that the UX designer would be doing wireframes and then the visual designer would be doing the polish. And we ended up switching that up just because it wasn't the right fit. Um, the visual designer had a strong appetite to become a full stack product designer. And so I ended up like switching that to have her be responsible for iOS. Myself and my intern took, well, my intern at the time took Android and I took web. And then we had the other designer doing some more foundational things elsewhere. And so like making sure that we're, we've got our team set up, it wasn't so much in like in a developmental way, but that the skills matched what the need was. And then also I worked with, you know, our, our TPM, our technical program manager to make sure we had phased and planned when the work was due. And then I'd go in and be the representative when we were working with, you know, the messenger team that was working on other things and that we'd, you know, leading reviews and making sure I was connecting with the PM regularly. And so to me, that was, it was, you know, mostly project leadership. So maybe 80% project leadership and maybe 20% team leadership. And then I also had to just make sure that I delivered, you know, the best designs, like even being the lead, it doesn't mean that I'm not designing. I was still making sure I owned it at least a track and a half of work. Yeah, I think that's one piece of that gets uh, omitted a lot about in conversations around leadership and I see lead aspects of fully understanding the makeup of a team, the, the ownership and responsibilities of those particular people versus when you're called a director or when you're called a manager, you don't necessarily need to be managing an, an individual to be able to help lead them in some ways. And I think often some designers get in their head that they can't, they can't lead unless they're given a title or given the, that responsibility. I hate how much we talk about titles associated with the capabilities of what we can do uh, and how we limit ourselves with those things. So it's really, really interesting for, to hear that that level. Um, how did, so how, I know you, you talked, you mentioned briefly before that you kind of jumped from being a, a lead to a director. I know you went from kind of leading at Facebook and then Zuckerberg initiative. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk about that span of going from, okay, I'm a lead at, at Facebook to the initiative to now I'm a director. Sure. So I had a I had a pretty unique experience in that when I was moving over to Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, so we moved the project, and this was this learning platform, and I had a choice whether to stay at Facebook and go to another team or move on to with the project. And I was really, we were doing really meaningful work um, on personalized learning and self-directed development for high school kids, and I was really passionate about it. And what happened was uh, my manager at the time decided not to go with the project. She decided to stay at Facebook and actually go back to an IC, figured the, the management thing wasn't for her. And so I, I became sort of interim manager and it wasn't something that, you know, just something that somebody had to build the design team. There was no design team at CZI. There was no tech team. Anybody who chose to move over were the foundations of that team. And so I found myself in a place where I was the people leader and I was the leader and I was, I was playing two roles and I was, the, you know, the staff level designer. And it was, it was really hard. And I think one of the things I, I notice now is that many, many ICs equate management with mentorship and see sort of just that, you know, if I'm mentoring and develop people and responsible for their careers, then that, that is management. And management is so much more <laughs> than just people leadership. Management and directorialship ends up being a lot about, you know, business strategy, looking at, you know, cross-org development and partnership with your go-to-market operations, any sort of sales and marketing and brand that's associated with that. It has to do with a lot of operational planning, a lot of organizational planning, and, you know, just generally being responsible for everything. <laughs> I mean, when you, are, when you are a design manager or a business leader, you, you everything is on you, and it's much, much different than just 
much, much more beyond than just management. And so what I ended up doing was I ended up having to build a team. And so I'd interviewed before, sure. And I, you know, previous companies, I've been a manager, but I hadn't figured, you know, I hadn't yet built recruiting operations from the ground up. And so that's something I figured out how to do. And we later hired a recruiter who helped polish what I had done. I hadn't figured out what it looks like to, you know, create process at a new company. And so I did a lot of this in collaboration with my teammates at the time where we sort of went and said, you know, well, we have, you know, plug and play practices we can use from Facebook. Do we want to keep them as forever, look at them later or change them now. And so we, we worked through all of this. And, and even by doing that sort of audit of like, hey, what does actually this design team need in terms of the business to thrive? And I took a lot of that work on and I was still leading a project full-time, <coughs> which I look back on and I'm like, I'm just insane. Like here I am sick talking to you and I should probably be taking another day off. I have no boundaries and no limits, which is a bad thing. But I, I really learned sort of the mass of what this is. And I've, I've, I've learned from that experience and I'm really interested in building good foundations, building good business foundations, building good process foundations, operational people, all of that stuff. And it just so happened um, I was recruiting for my own boss, the, the director we were going to hire and it was like a level or two above me. And LinkedIn just started, you know, doing its thing and being like, hi, I see you're searching for director roles, <laughs> director people. Do you want a director role? And this Udacity post came up and it was like, I read through it and I was like, this is way above my level. I was like, but it's me. Like it's describing me. And I went with this whole, I have a, a best friend who interviews for every role she, she possibly can. She's made huge leaps in her career by doing that. I don't do that. I, I tend to be a loyalist. I stayed at Facebook for five years. And so I just kind of went with a, like, what's the worst that could happen? And I did, you know, one screen, one phone call interview and one onsite and I got the job. And it was insane because I had never interviewed when I was like, I, I made it may have had two coffee chats, but I always shut everything down because I was so happy at Facebook. I was learning. I was growing. They were treating me well. It wasn't as contentious as it is now. And I just like, I decided that there are some times that you need to take small steps and there's some times that you need to take big leaps. And for me, it was honestly like a 50% pay cut. It was doing something I had never done before. I didn't, you know, I, I didn't ask all the questions I should have asked, but I went for it. Um, and it ended up being great for six months and really hard for six months. And I had to take a leap again and, you know, did, did a similar thing, but it ended up just being a question of, I wasn't growing in the way I wanted to grow at CZI anymore. I would still be, um, I would still need to be a, a designer. And that sort of world had opened up to me. That leadership was really what I wanted to do. People leadership, business leadership. And I wasn't going to have the opportunity to do that at CZI. And so it was time. And, you know, now three jobs later, here I am leading a, a, a substantial size of the org within Dropbox. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> so you. There's a lot in there that I kind of mm -hmm. want to unpack because I told uh, the story a few times if you can't tell. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a good story. Um, and one that stood out to me in particular is the, and I think you, it felt like you kind of brushed over that for a minute. Like I took a 50% pay drop to, <laughs> to make this change in your life. I don't think people talk about that aspect very often of, what you're what you're sacrificing for the the other thing that you're trying to to improve yep. you want to talk about that a little bit of like sure uh, I mean money's not everything to everyone and or it is everything to everyone but I would love to, to just kind of hear your your take on that I actually love talking about money not not in specifics but <laughs> so I grew up I grew up in a like below poverty level family my dad was unemployed for most of my growing up um, still privileged, still white, still have a lot going for me, but I, I had sort of, you know, known what not having any money looks like. And so I worked for six years in San Francisco when I came out here with a job that paid me like no, no more than maybe 40 grand a year. And I worked, I worked minimum wage jobs to get myself through grad school. And so money is very important to me. And I've always kind of approached it with the perspective of, you know, even if it's not the money, it's the money that affords me a life where I don't have to worry and I have grown up my entire life worrying until I got into tech, worrying about my funds and what living paycheck to paycheck meant and never being able to think about my future. 
and Tanner and I were able to buy a house a couple years ago in San Francisco, a 740 square foot house. It is not a big house, but like owning my own home is very, very cool. Facebook has what we call the golden handcuffs. Like when I started, their stock was ridiculously low, like $22 or something like that a share. And it went up to over 300. And so, you know, the gains on that are enormous. And so I finally you know, got a taste of what it was like to be really financially well off. And I think there was something there where, you know, as long as I was fine and those refreshers kept coming, it made it really hard to leave. And so when I left and Susie, I did some special thing when I came over of giving me some, you know, substantial sum of money to make that more even as a transfer. But when I left, I walked away from some obscene amount of money, like $350 a year or $350 a year. That's not obscene, 350K. A year. And it was, it was a real question I had. It's like, you know, how do you weigh those, those trade-offs of like, I know I'm going to grow more here, but I know that I'm going to, you know, be less secure. And I was making probably less than a senior I see at Facebook. And to me, that was insane. And, you know, it was the first time I had worked at a place that had stock options and Udacity, you know, had an IPO track and they, they ended up having to change their product market fit like three different times. And the same thing at Intercom. Like I, I came in and, and, you know, there's stock options and the, the, it's a different challenge when you're going in as a leader and you're saying, I'm not just going to sit back and take these gains when they come. What I'm going to do is I'm actually going to be part of the leadership team that helps drive us to success and helps pay our people financially and, and with recognition for all the work we put in to have, to have us go through that profitability moment. And I was willing to do the work. And like, frankly, like Intercom was my place. Like I, I love Intercom. I believe in them. I would work there again in a heartbeat because working on that leadership team was such a learning experience. and was such a magical moment in my life. But I think that's something that, you know, it, it kind of, it kind of the, your values change. I actually have, I don't, I don't know if I can access it really quickly, but I have a screenshot that I keep on my desk that basically talks about my, how I, how I evaluate things. And usually this, this fluxes a little bit, but usually the first thing is people. Like I want to work with really, really great people. I want to work with kind-hearted people who are collaborators, who are willing to debate when it's hard, who, who are going to support each other and challenge each other. The second thing is usually personal growth. Am I going to grow? Because if I'm not becoming a better leader, it means I'm not doing the service I need to do for the people below me in trickling that down and, and helping create space for them and lifting, lifting each other up. And then it usually has to do with things like work-life balance. I might've skewed too heavily on that one, given we were in a pandemic when I got laid off and like, I just didn't know what it was going to be like afterwards. And then it usually has something to do with um, comp or something like that afterwards. So I tend to keep those same things. They just shift. Um, right now, even though I'm, I'm, you know, compensated well at Dropbox, my comp probably falls, you know, a five out of five. It's not the most important thing that I, that I work for, but I do have the luxury of having, you know, if I should lose my job for any reason, I do have a decent reputation and I do have a, a great portfolio behind me that I, I don't have to rely on that substantial income in a way that I might have when I was younger. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. I think there's each, each person's individual story around their growth, the financial needs that they have, it varies depending on, on all of it. And it's just interesting some of the, the stories that we have around when we make a choice for one reason or another. I do want to dig into like how you organize your teams and the structure. You've been a director for multiple companies now. I'd love to, to hear how, you've org how those teams have been organized, how you organize them at Dropbox, or any of the three that uh, Udacity, I think it's, and then Intercom and, and Dropbox, right? I'd yeah. love to see, just hear your story around how you organize things. So I recognize in my history that I've, I've only worked at really true product companies and that I would differentiate from, well, Udacity was a little bit different. I think we were in a, in a debate of whether we were a product company or an education company, like i.e. is what we're serving the content we're creating or is it the, the platform by which we serve the content? Facebook is a product company. Um, CCI was in, is a philanthropic company, company, but I wasn't there like technically for long enough to disassociate it from Facebook. <coughs> Intercom is a true product company. Dropbox is a true product company. And so when I think of organization, it's usually around centralized or uh, sorry, decentralized design orgs where we have an EPD, you might call it engineering product design or R&D, research and development. Usually it has a, you know, a triad, which is a lead of an equal partner from engineering product and design. Sometimes data comes in and out, sometimes research does. 
And most of the companies I've worked at have had, you know, a peer group like myself, that's EPD, area leads below them that are EPD, and then teams below them that are EPD. And so when I look at that as balance for, you know, product development, it makes sure that we have that through line of, you know, product strategy and design thinking and process and high execution at every level. And that to me is the most successful organizational model that I've seen there. You know, there's many ways to do this. If you're working in house, you may end up being working more as a service organization where you're sort of like given projects, like an agency, but I've, I've mostly seen that one model and it's, it's what's the most effective. One of the challenges I had at Udacity was we did have sort of a separate group that was working on a new business type venture and they were the intent from all of leadership was sort of to keep them there. And what I realized was with a small team, it's actually quite hard when someone is sort of burned out on a project, you need to move people around and make sure they're getting the right um, experiences. And, you know, there I had a team, I think we went from like a team of five or six or seven to 20. And so with contractors and all different disciplines, but the movement, the bigger you get is really, really useful to make sure you're not only retaining people, but giving them the right opportunities to make sure that they can succeed. And as your organization grows, you have a little bit more flexibility with that, but the structure underneath it becomes really important. So right now I I manage four areas. I have three area leads. And then within them, there's each one of those area leads has maybe anywhere from three to five teams. And they'll be under things like mobile, which Al has just joined, or core experience or different, different parts of our business. On intercom, I led our messenger area, as well as our growth team. So similar, similar organizational makeup. And, and when you say those four area leads, those are IC leads, like you talked about being. Those are man, they're managers. They're managers. Okay. Yeah. And I think that's an interesting thing for terminology, terminology. We use lead a lot at Dropbox, but it, it, you know, you can use lead as the, you know, a designer title, and that might mean you're paid to lead the team or it might be you're like the lowercase lead and you're just the go-to. You could also use a staff level designer or a principal, which I know we've talked about a little bit, but they they tend to mean different things at different companies. It's always interesting when I'm um, sourcing or recruiting or interviewing folks, I'm like, what did that mean for you? Because we don't have standardized roles as an industry. I don't know that we need to, but yeah, it can be confusing. Those are area managers. Yeah. <laughs> that's the, that's the clarification I wanted to, to make sure people understood when you were talking about uh, a lead and how, just for context for the rest of the, the group, um, when, when you talk about say Dropbox, how many designers total are there or are there multiple directors? Is there a VP? Can you kind of give the, the broader bird's eye view of <clears throat> of the the design team because you've got the horizontal EPD model aspects that decentralizes everything but from an, from a horizontal model of just design organization as a structure can you kind of give us an idea of what that looks like yeah it, it, it looks a lot like Facebook did and I think there's sort of the big company model and the small company model the big company model tends to be you know there's a VP or you know Chief of Design, Alistair Simpson is our VP of Design. And then underneath him will be just like a Facebook. There's a number of either VPs or directors or senior directors that run orgs. And in the same way that um, engineering and product is shaped, uh, the difference is, you know, engineering tends to have more people. And so their cascade might go one level lower. So at the very bottom, not bottom, but at the very executional level, we might have one IC designer and product person working with six engineers. And so then they have a, a point person, which is the engineering manager. And so then, you know, most organizations are, are done by, t- you know, what they're focusing on the business. And so for example, like at Facebook, you'll have a messenger pillar and then underneath you'll have, you know, the business messenger versus, you know, maybe they might have a, an, an org around sort of like ingesting content into the messenger within business, they might have ads. Like, so the, it, it just tends to be a cascading structure. It's very similar at Dropbox where we sort of have, you know, different parts of the business, which I won't go into detail about, but I found at Udacity and Intercom, they'll often have the director and then skip, skip the manager level and just have ICs. And the idea is they want to um, hire in their first leader in order to grow the team and then establish those middle managers and so, for example, part of my time, I was, I was the head of design at Udacity running the whole design org. 
And over time, I um, promoted two of my senior slash lead designers to managers to try out the people management thing and see if that was in their path. But initially when I came in, I had, I think whatever that number was, I'm just going to say seven because seven feels right to me right now. And by the time I grew it up to 12, I realized that wasn't scalable for me. And I needed to make sure I started to establish that, that middle management lever. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And when you talk about the, the, the layer of leads that you have, are they also doing IC level work or are they purely managing people? They are purely managing except for um, one of my managers is, a, is an amazing craftsperson. And so he'll sometimes still get in the Figma files for, you know, strategy work or any sort of visuals or, or supporting his people. To me, when, when you need to be a manager is, or when, when we need to inject that layer really has to do with scale. And so at, at Intercom, Emmett, the other director, senior director now, and I had sort of an agreement that the max capacity for someone to lead was probably about five people. And the idea is when you are a people manager, you are not, at least at the companies I've worked for and for my expectations, you're not just a people manager. You're still a business leader and a strategy leader. And so a big part of your work is either leading some of that yourself or coaching your people and supporting your people on how to do that. And so when you have more than five reports, it ends up being difficult to, you know, not just manage their careers, but also manage across and upwards and across to your other design manager peers or across to your EPD peers, and then keep tabs on all of the work and all of your operations, your design critiques, your reviews, how you keep tabs on your roadmap, all of those things. And so there's sort of like a breaking point where it feels comfortable. So I tend to not um, want to have, you know, line managers for just one or two people and line manager would be the same as that middle level of management unless there's really, really need. And so if I were to ever do something like have someone manage like one or two people, they'd probably be sort of still in that player coach model where they're still acting in the work, but acting as a manager for a very new employee. And the intent there is sometimes around getting the person that experience, but usually around a business need. Okay. Yeah, that's that's really good context. How do you approach career development with your teams? I have a, a longstanding belief that all of your career development should be done within your job. And this is from sort of years of looking at folks and saying, hey, where do you want to grow? And hearing things like, I want to be a better public speaker. And I'm like, cool. How are you going to do that? And they're like, I'm going to take classes outside or you know, hey, I want to get better at my visual design. Okay, cool. How are you going to do that? I'm going to, you know, get on Skillshare and take a bunch of classes. And I'm like, wow, we just created an F ton of extra work for you to do something that may or may not be related to your job. And so I like to keep the philosophy that your development areas should be practiced and enhanced in the way in your in the work that you do daily. I don't want somebody to have a 20 hour side job in order to develop their skills. I want them to develop their skills at work. And so what I like to do is do some sort of, there's a couple different tracks, like individually, I like to do some sort of side-by-side evaluation. I'll pitch this as, as long as I can. I found this amazing talk from Tasha Yurik, who's a business psychologist who did a TED talk on self-awareness. And she really talked about this concept of a dual evaluation, where if you see yourself the same way other people see you, then you're probably self-aware. And I can tie that directly back to skills. So if I say I'm good at this skill and my manager says I'm good at that skill too, I'm probably good at it. If I say I'm terrible at this skill and my peer looks up to me because they think I'm great at this skill, then I'm probably actually great at that skill, but I might not be self-aware enough to know it. And so one of the things I like to do, and I've done this at, I think most of the companies I've worked at is sort of do this evaluation where I step back and evaluate my people. They do it for themselves. And then we come together and we have a conversation about it. Because what that does is it, and I do it from the rubrics we have internally, and what that does is it actually uncovers the areas within our jobs that you know people are excelling in, they might have an area of opportunity in, and then we can decide together what to work on. And then it's often my job or their job to be seeking those opportunities. So there's, there's first like looking at an individual level and making sure that we have people who are challenged and growing and thriving. And I think that's like Everybody wants to be challenged and growing and thriving. Like that's how we, how, how many of us find satisfaction in our work. And then the other way I tend to look at it is like shape of the team. And so usually a great place to start is in our sort of pulse surveys or whatever you call them at whatever company, at least at bigger companies, they do them that say, where are, where are we doing well? Where are we not doing well? And for example, one that I've worked on in the past and currently working on is, you know, Hey, how, how do we think about career development? 
and, you know, uncover things like, you know, people want skill clubs. They want places where they can go and learn from each other or, you know, people aren't sure of what this like principal path looks like versus manager. So can we talk about that more? And I think there's, there's sometimes common themes that you can extract depending on the culture of the company that might be more valuable in one environment than another. And so looking at it from both sort of an individual and a, a team shape has been pretty helpful for me. I, I like I like the thinking there. The I have some questions about the rubric that you had mentioned. Is that something that HR builds across multiple disciplines or is it something that the design discipline has, has created as a rubric? I think it really depends on the maturity of the company. In my mind, you should have things that you value as a company. You know, there's obviously going to be craft skills, but there could be, you know, how do you care about like business impact? How do you want to measure that? How do you think about what you value in soft skills? Is humility, learning and humility something you value or is it collaboration? And so I think it's useful to go through an exercise as a team to do that. And I, I much prefer orgs that are aligned across disciplines, just because like when we look at fairness, in functions, like should designers be paid more than engineers? Is the role the same? Like there are actually public rubrics that evaluate levels against, you know, think about customer service specialists or executive assistants. Like how do we create fairness in an org? And it's, I haven't found it useful to go off as a design function and do this independently because you, there's actually like legal standards that you, you need to abide by. So I think a good practice is if you don't have a rubric is just to figure out, you know, what are the four or five facets that the company wants to evaluate by? And then one of those is usually some sort of craft thing. And so, for example, you know, in your designers, do you expect product strategy to be a piece of that interaction design, visual design, and then get into the details of where those are. Uh, if you want a really great example, intercom.design was one that I developed with Emmett and team. I think John Coleman was a big part of, of that, but we have a public facing rubric there that you can sort of see what it looks like as you step change from level to level and what the different facets are in the details. And that I believe was synced with, at, at least with product. We were a little bit earlier in our maturity of getting those, those standards down. It's, I totally agree. Having, you can't do it on your own for sure, but ha- having a good rubric definitely helps a lot. Speaking, um, going into hiring, I know you're doing a lot of hiring right now. Uh, um, little plug for Dropbox, if anybody wants to work for Dropbox. And all of a sudden we're like, we need more people. <laughs> right. Um, how do you, I know you, you are, you're a strong believer in diversity and hiring and diversity in general, same with the intersectionality of it all. How do you approach that in, uh, in your hiring? Yeah. I mean, I want, I want people to walk away saying hiring people with diverse backgrounds is not that hard. Like I, I, I feel, I feel like we've made such a big deal about this and we haven't actually, we, I say like leaders and we actually haven't done the work to try and make change. And it's really frustrating for me. I like, I look at my background and I'm, I, you know, didn't, didn't grow up in wealth and that's fine. But as I mentioned before, like just being white is so privileged. Like I, I get my foot in the door. I've gotten, you know, jobs without interviewing. Like it's, it's nuts how successful my career has been. And I, I have like a luxury of success even now, you know, being a, a director at a rep- reputable company. And even as a woman, like I've had, you know, my own challenges in that, but I still think that doing the work is my responsibility. And so I worked really, really hard at Intercom to revise our interviewing process to make it more fair, just like in things of how we source. We were saying things like, let's source from big tech. Well, who dominates big tech? You know, (laughs) even looking at Facebook is a a bunch of white dudes that sort of made their own company and 50% of them, don't quote me on that, but are still the the C-suite leaders. And some of them leave and come back, but it's still not representative of the world that we serve. And so I, what I, what I believe is I, I believe, of course, I believe in equality, but I believe in equity over equality. And by equity, I mean, giving people the opportunity who may not, not, in, not necessarily individual, but may not from being in a group that's marginalized, giving them a, a, a fair shot and giving them a more fair shot than perhaps the, the 
person that has had the opportunity or the group of people that have had the opportunity. And so I tend to look at this from a sourcing perspective. If I look at my natural pipelines at any company, it's usually, you know, a ton of white, a ton of maybe even qualified white men. And that's great. What I want to do is not make decisions there, but make sure that I have a pipeline that's more representative and then make sure that we do the comparison. And so that to me, if anybody follows me on Twitter, I've been blasting lately and I've, you know, offered to have individual conversations or give guidance to anybody who um, identifies as part of the BIPOC community. And what that's done is it's, first of all, I've had like 300 conversations, which is nuts and was so fun because I feel like I got to know so many people, like real human individuals that are different from me. And I love that. But what that's done is it's able to, for, it's enabled me to give some personal guidance and be able to say, you know, hey, your visuals aren't there yet. Or I think this is a great fit. You should apply for this role though. And that's, that's a tiny bit of guidance that most people won't get. They'll just submit their application to some black box and they get it or they don't. And I think one of the things that's just missing is feedback. You know, we, we are, there, there are places who are like, oh, I don't want to get feedback. Like it could be a lawsuit. It's a gift. Like to me, it's, it's, it's actually what we should be doing is, is giving people guidance so that they actually can go and improve what might be holding them back. And so taking this from a personal personal perspective where I want to build relationships and help people grow, that's been really, really effective. And we had three roles. I'm super excited. We um, actually are adding two black designers to our team and the other role we ended up filling internally. And to me, that's like, these people are the right people for the job. They're exceptionally qualified. They're great people. They're great designers. They make the shape of our team. And I'm really excited to continue to push on that. The other thing that I have to think about too is, you know, how do we also make ourselves an inclusive work culture? It's not just about hiring and bringing people in. It's how can we make sure that basically anybody can thrive at Dropbox. And thankfully Dropbox has got so many amazing programs set up that we're ready for that. I think many companies you come in and you're like, if you're the first woman on a leadership team um, and they're not quite sure what to do with you once you they're like we got a number but what do we do with you now and then I'll be like here let me tell you what to do with me like that's not a that's not a warm and welcoming scenario so making sure that it's not just like getting you know a wide pipeline getting the right people in the door but making sure they're set up to be supported too yeah or not even treated differently treated like as if you're equals <laughs> or do, but that's it do treat like to me I'm like do treat me differently I, I was reading Kim oh, Scott really? just Kim Scott just came out with this book. uh, It's called Just Work. And it was her. So she wrote Radical Candor. And it was in response to her realizing that Radical Candor was written from a place of privilege. And I think the difference is like, we may not be the same. Like, we just may not. We're individuals. And so when you, you know, when you, and, you know, you show ground in your bro time, like, that's not okay when I'm around. It's not okay when I'm not around. But how do we help elevate the environment where, and I'm not saying you and your bro talk. Maybe, I don't know. I don't know, Ben. Um, but I think there are ways to acknowledge where, you know, people come from different backgrounds and how, how do we actually make truly inclusive environments and, and actually recognize that they're probably not right now. They're probably not because they haven't been, the environments that we work on are, are typically white male do- dominated, at least in the, in the, in the companies in the worlds that I live in right now. And so saying, you know, what's the cost of that? And right now, the, the more I look at it, it's like, I, I still get recruiting emails all the time. And I, I look at everybody's board and everybody's leadership team. And I'm like, if you're all dudes, I don't know that that's where I want to go in and work because I've spent the past couple of years doing the work and I'm obligated and I'm happy to do the work, but I also need you to do the work. And I can tell that you haven't just looking at, you know, the faces on your leadership team. Yeah, no, that definitely makes sense. I mean, we need to, <laughs> whether there's the diversity or not the just acting like I wasn't trying to say anything weird about treat you differently. I mean, treat each other with respect all, all around. So it's going into the hiring, there's, <laughs> there's the diversity aspect of it, but also like a rubric just in general around quality of, of candidates and, and what you're looking for. Do you follow a rubric for, how you uh, hire and maybe can you give some insight into that? I know we only, unfortunately, we only have like five more minutes, but would love to kind of close in on. I'll make it quick. Yeah. Yeah. I, I have a firm belief that what you look for when you hire should be what you're held accountable to as your role. 
So if you actually have a rubric for, you know, performance reviews, why not use that for when people are coming in? I will say the, uh, the caveat is that it is really hard in an interview to comprehensively evaluate and understand who somebody is. And so being willing to create a culture of interviewing that's really about learning and less about judgment. And so that means like being very clear on what you're looking for. I actually call the criteria look fors. And I pulled that from educational, my work in ed tech, where when teachers or sorry, principals and superintendents and admins come in and look for, look in a classroom and look for teach, good teacher behaviors, they look for these things. And so we're really just looking for them. That's all. We're like trying to get an opportunity for somebody to demonstrate that they have this thing. The other framework, it's not quite related, but it relates back to what we say. We've had success in hiring by using the Rooney rule. I don't know who's familiar with that, but the Rooney rule is basically, I think it's in sports ball, probably football, where head of something established that in order to do a representative hiring, they'd have a panel of four candidates, two had to be women and one had to be a person of color. And so we do that, or we, we've done that at different companies and had success with that too. So it's like, how do you A, make sure you have the right people, the right representative people on your panel? And, and don't tell me that, you know, oh, well, I have somebody, they're ready to go and football. Thank you, Bruce Daniels. At least I got the right kind of sports, sports ball. Um, <laughs> but we, you know, it's easy when you're fir- your first candidate that you're interviewed, you're like, they're great. Let's hire them. And it might not actually like build your team to the shape you want it to be, but it's easy and you don't want to do the work. Work isn't that hard. So yeah, making sure that you're not only like looking at the right candidates and then evaluating in a way that's looking for the things that you want and looking for that potential. And potential is a, is a whole other topic that we don't have time to get into, but I'm, I'm, I'm warming up to it. Absolutely. Well, I just want to say thank you for your time, for sharing your experiences with us. Hopefully it's been valuable to, to the group and thank you again. We My pleasure. Appreciate it. Is there any way that people can reach out to you if they have advice or, I mean, it sounds like you're very open to talking to anyone. Yep. <laughs> I, I do like just to be frank, like I've learned that through this exercise and and me understanding my my inherent racism and how I must learn to be an anti-racist. I do prioritize people from the bike pot community, but I am on the Twitters all the time. I'm jazzy33ca. It is indeed my old like college email handle and I haven't changed it. I'm not going to change it. So I'll just pop that in the chat and y'all can find me if you'd like. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much again and I hope you have a wonderful weekend. Thank you. And thanks everybody for listening and take care. A big thanks to Jasmine for presenting, and again to Lucid for hosting the event. If you learned some things from Jasmine's talk, be sure to share it with your team, or share it on Twitter, and mention us at product underscore hive. Sharing these talks is a great way to support Product Hive. As always, be sure to check out all our upcoming events. You can find them by searching for Product Hive on meetup.com. And while you're there, go ahead and join the group so you always get the latest updates. We also have a YouTube channel where you can find videos of all the past talks. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in your feed soon, and we'll see you at one of our next events.